electoral democracy creates an incentive to spend other people's money. Yeah. A jury does not. I'm trying to prove that the substantive role for randomly selected everyday people could transform politics. If we actually get to a point where we can start reform conversations because we're not looking for the gotcha moment, we're not looking for the soundbite, we pass it to a jury of citizens and they give us a starting point, the big box, we start to change what is actually possible in terms of getting more efficient long-term decisions. We have a mechanism in our society for making trusted public decisions. If we can apply it to whether someone gets locked up for 25 years, can we also apply it equally to public decisions? Welcome to an episode of the Sustainable Interviews. Very, very excited for this one because I think as we all look around, I was going to say Australia, but really the whole world, there's something broken about our political system. You know, we all like to rag on politicians. They're all in it for themselves. The snouts are in the trough and so on. But if you think of that famous quote, um, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome, right? It's only, it's natural. It's like, I understand why politicians do what they do. They barely get started having won an election. Then, oh, they got to get ready for the next election. So they're in this constant cycle of pandering to handouts and, 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 and popularity contests. Well, today we are exploring this whole issue and a possible solution. Joining me is Ian Walker. Ian Walker is from the New Democracy Foundation. Going to find out a whole lot more about them in this interview. And what I want you to keep in mind throughout this interview is we're not just, this is not just a, a, a thought experiment, a pontification of what needs to be done, which some of my interviews are very fun, but can be a bit of a thought experiment. This is a very practical interview. Uh, Ian's about to tell us about what they do. And one of the things I'm, I'm struck by is the fact that they are already rolling out um, these citizen juries, if I can call them that, uh, around the place in smaller kind of government areas first, but, but the goal being to transform the way we we, we run our uh, political systems and our governments. So before we get started, thank you for being here. These interviews are all free at our website, discernible.io or on Spotify or on Twitter now in full. Uh, they're free to you because there's a very small group of paid supporters who fund our work at uh, discernible.locals.com. So Ian, I hope that intro is okay off the cuff, uh, but thank you for joining me today. Pleasure. Fabulous intro, Matt. Okay. Uh, should I, you know that, that website you've got, what is it? Changepolitics.org? Yep. Changepolitics.org.au. .org.au. Otherwise you end up at, I think, uh, something owned by 350.org or, or those folks who have a little bit more of a point of view in politics. Oh, the green kind of agenda? Uh, uh, right. Yeah, so it's a left-aligned body. I think it's a change.org-owned uh, website. So that's why I've just got to be a little bit careful on domain. But yeah, newdemocracy.com.au. Think of the temple and the bazaar. That's the research foundation side. And the, the first steps for, for any voter is changepolitics.org.au. Okay, if you don't mind, maybe I'll just quickly play that two-minute explainer video for everyone watching to uh, lead us into our conversation. Hey, it's not just me, right? You're absolutely sick of politics too, yeah? Nothing gets done, everyone's avoiding the blame, it looks bad, sounds worse. And just about everyone thinks they could do a better job. You know, the reason I think it's falling over is actually because of the system. The system has politicians spending all their time playing politics in order to win elections. To keep their job, they spend most of their time obsessing over polls, donations, 
and their public image instead of concentrating on fixing things and solving problems. But there's a reason why they act like this. With their predictable hard hats, kissing babies and schmoozing, those are the things that win elections. All this means is that over time, we've seen our politicians get better and better at winning elections and worse and worse at solving problems, which is pretty stupid, right? What we need is something that can change politics. How it looks, how it sounds, and even how it thinks and acts. But most importantly, how it works. They're called citizens' assemblies. They take everyday people like you, chosen by lottery, they're given a problem and asked to find agreement on solutions. They're paid and given the best conditions to find common ground. This means plenty of time, access to relevant info and subject matter experts, including ones they choose themselves. They work because they bring people together to think critically about what is of concern to us. And they have the right incentives. They're not worrying about headlines, fundraising or the never-ending election cycle. This isn't just an idea either. They're increasingly being used all around the world to find solutions for complex problems, like climate change, budgeting and housing, and being used by presidents in Ireland, France and Germany. If a mixed group of people who have had the chance to hear a range of views can find agreement, then surely that's a public decision we can trust. So how exactly are we going to change things? The bottom line is that politicians have to care about votes. So if we show them enough people want to see a change in politics, they'll listen. With your signatures and the proof from the citizens' assemblies that we're already running, together we can change politics. Sign the petition now. Visit changepolitics.org.au. Okay, Ian, let's do it. What are you up to trying to fix this problem in politics? A great place to start. What problem are we trying to fix? Because um, a lot of people, I think in your intro, you said a lot of people just look at the news and go, oh, these people, they yell, they shout, they're bad people. The problem we think needs to be fixed is that we've built a political system that is hyper-responsive to public opinion, what you think in the next five or ten seconds. And in reality, because you can't tell politicians to ignore pub public opinion or they become former politicians. So we're trying to build a public judgment mechanism. Now, the simplest way to understand this, it's like the criminal jury. Matt, if you and I have a wild night out tonight, we won't, you know, we end up picked up by the police. We won't demand a poll of a thousand people to determine whether or not we go to jail because people just go, he looks guilty and boof, you know, you're in all sorts of trouble. We'll take a random selection of the community We'll expose them to diverse and contested evidence. We'll give them extended time. We'll give them a clear task. And then we'll ask them to find common ground as a group. And the jury mechanism is overwhelmingly trusted. Think about the last time you heard something controversial happen and someone was either convicted or acquitted. Your reaction was probably, oh, well, that's fair enough. Whereas in politics, that's really not our response. So this is a good news story. We have a mechanism in our society for making trusted public decisions. If we can apply it to whether someone gets locked up for 25 years, can we also apply it equally to public decisions? And that's what we do. We seek to roll this out as a complementary mechanism alongside our, our election model and say, does this help to get us beyond public opinion to public judgment? So are you really just talking about focus groups where the politicians get a few people in a room and try and figure out public opinion? 
Uh, no, but it's, it's everyone's starting point. A focus group tends to test an answer. So a focus group would start with, you know, do you like the cereal in the red box or the yellow box? Do you like the bran flakes or the rice bubbles? And you're right, a heck of a lot of politics is based around that because they're public opinion mechanisms. So a focus group is about an hour. A citizen's jury or a citizen's assembly, these are commonly 50 to 60 hours across four to five months. Think about that vast difference. So I might pose an open question and a really easy place to start is um, for those with a longer memory, you might remember um, Prime Minister Abbott actually commissioned the Commission of Audit. It was run by Tony Shepherd, and it sought to look at how you fund the health system. Now, hopefully this will tr trigger your memory. Came up with $7 to go to the doctor. Well, that's I don't right. know if you remember this. What did it get called? What, GP Abbott's co-payment? Oh, GP, GP tax. Yeah. Yes. What happened there? You had a multi-million dollar exploration of an issue, but the minute it hit the public environment, oh, it went yeah. to opinion, it went to slogans. Mm -hmm. I want you to imagine a different world where by all means still do that expert inquiry, but then we pass it to a jury of 50, 70, 100 people. That's it. We ask them one question. How can we pay for the health system we want? Now, across a period of months, they can select expertise of their own choosing. They will have questions. They'll want, to, they'll want answered. We always ask people to make an informed decision. What do you need to know? Who do you trust to inform you? So source control is a big part of this. So information is not simply pushed. Our contention is if those 100 people, blue collar, white collar, old, young, different levels of wealth, if they can find agreement that the rest of the population would look at it and say, oh, well, that's people like me. That looks fair enough. Because, as you touched on, there's a lot of incentives for people in elected office to maybe tell us what we want to hear. But the incentives for a group that we pick at random and who go back to their lives afterwards are much more aligned to our own. We just live here. Uh, so even if that group hypothetically came back and said, look, we've looked at all the health system costs, you know, we understand where the demand points are, we're going to have to pay $10 to go to the doctor, it's one thing hearing it from Tony Shepard, it's one thing hearing it from a government or an opposition, when you hear it from your dentist, childcare worker, Uber driver, juggler, mm. that mix of people, I think we're more inclined to trust them. I don't know. I don't know any jugglers, but this this is funny because when you mentioned the GP tax, we see that a lot with politics, right? They come up with some idea, they run it through the focus groups, then they launch it on the public, and it just falls flat. And we go, "What on earth? What were they thinking? That's ridiculous." But that wouldn't happen if we go through this five, six months citizens' assembly because it's coming from the you know a grassroots type perspective. You've you've got it. Normally, politics spends a lot of time, a lot of time trying to figure out what we can live with, and very much on the folks group side, how to package it and present it so that it doesn't look like a bowl of dog food. And so they spend all this time and then pitch it out and. Phew, doesn't go very far. All we're suggesting is what if you invert that? What if you actually start with, we're going to draw the big box of what people can live with, a, re a group of people, and it has to be a small group, otherwise the incentives to read and learn are really small. Um, mm. If you're one of 50 people, um, let me start from a different point. We all pay tax. Have you read the Henry Tax Review? Most Some idiots know. like me have skimmed part of it. Yeah. Not <laughs> always got no. to do with it with a journalist or an interviewer. Um, we all have super. There's about half a dozen super reviews going on in the Senate at any given point of time. Mm. Most of us will have a six or seven figure exposure to that and not read it. Why? Because your voice actually doesn't matter. You're one seventeen millionth of a say. 
Now, if I make you one of 50 people and say that you'll get an answer from a parliament, a government, a minister in six months' time, your incentives to engage with that and read and think and challenge and question, they go through the roof. And that's fundamentally why this works. Are you thinking 50 is the right number? We vary. I mean, they are bespoke designs. It varies a little bit by population and by issue, but I'm trying to give you a general sense of scale in that great thing with groups of 40 to 50 people is you meet everyone. And there's some Mm. degree of social obligation to say, well, we're all going to keep turning up and applying ourselves. As the groups get bigger, there's an incentive starts to slide. You think, I don't need to read things. Mm. Other people will do it. I can just chirp in from the sidelines. So even when we do things, if we were to do something on a national basis, You'd either do 100 people in Canberra or you do a series of 30, 40, 50 people at state level and then bring a group together. You're trying to preserve that small group dynamic. So I, I was going to ask why it seems so natural to me. Like if you, we know that if you want to have your workforce, if you're the CEO and you want your workforce to adopt a new culture, a new procedure, a new product, whatever, you don't foist it upon them. You have to find a way to get to generate buy-in. And one of the ways you do that is by getting them to come up with parts of it and really entwining their own sense of worth and identity and and, and work in with the new with your vision as CEO. And then bang, you, you're on a winner. You don't foist it on, on them. So it seems to me obvious, why haven't we done this before? But then as I was thinking of asking that question, I thought this eliminates lobbying and there's such a big a, 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 a you know the the so-called deep state just the, the deals that are done behind the scenes if i'm the c if i'm what's his name alan joyce Qantas, and i, I want to do a deal and i talk to the people in government if, if i've got citizen juries around that's going to bypass all of that so isn't this a really big prevention to your plan look we certainly have a tough job you know at the end of the day my customers for democratic innovation and reform are people placed there by the current system. If you or I competed in in an election and we won office, we would probably think that the system is great and wise for placing us there. So the argument for change is challenging, but there's a very thick silver lining on that very small gray cloud. Most people in elected office recognize after about six years that there's a lot that they can't do, that they're constrained by public opinion. There are people who want to, who came into politics, many of them, to reform key areas of government. And over that period, you learn what you can't do. And that's the people who become very open. We don't see a left-right divide as much as more. It's people who are right at the edges who are convinced they have the sole right answer. That's a tough audience for us. But for the vast body of, of politicians um, spanning party lines, they can see the appeal. They can see how it works. Arguably, the greatest barrier we face is that politics of control. You know, you don't ask a question where you don't know the answer to it. Mm-hmm. You set up a media event where what, I think every party's being caught out on here's Bob the tradie, and Bob turns out to actually be a party official or, yeah. or something similar. Um, we this is we are trying to build a trusted mechanism. Implicit in building a trusted mechanism is the idea of an uncontrolled answer. We ask citizens a question. When we then give them source control. Uh, extended period of time and the fact that they self-write their reports and government and consultants don't trust them, we are deliberately designing to have a result such that those 50 or so people say, we did this. Now, that is, that's a little challenging for some people in politics to grasp and, and get their hands on. But for some policy issues, we find politicians who say to us, all possible o- options open to us are terrible. 
that's when people get really open to the change. Think of things around balancing a council budget. Do you want to cut services? Do you want to raise taxes? Do you want to sell assets? There's no decision a mayor or a set of councillors can take that won't earn criticism. Think of planning and density. You know, how does our city need to change? Um, that's a question where literally any action you see elected officials get shot at. That's a really good criteria for, I don't think you can make a trusted decision today. Let's try this mechanism. And it's not experimental. It's been at the centre of some very challenging political reforms around the world. Okay. So before we go to practical, let's stay in the um, conceptual space because I have some questions. Uh, you've touched a bit on, you know, there'd be a reason why some politicians would want this kind of a mechanism. But let's first look to the reasons why they wouldn't want it. So I'm thinking of two stakeholders. One, politicians... Well, first of all, let me do the the, um, the, the corporates of the world. If, if I'm um, Alan Jost, God bless him, now he's he's retired. If, if I'm him in Qantas, it's a lot easier for me to go to the transport minister and and negotiate and, and get some stuff through that benefits me, my shareholders, my company. It's very difficult for me to go and influence a citizen's assembly who's looking at whether we should open up more routes to foreign airlines or not. So right. So first, so before we get to the politicians, how how what do you do? You see any fallout from this cutting off of the influence? If I, you know, I've currently got these channels. You're talking about deleting those channels. Uh, yes. Um, so not all lobbying entities are created equally. We actually frequently hear from lobbying groups who say we're sick of trying to just sort of have a get our two lines in the telegraph, and someone else gets their two lines. And at the end of the day, our issue doesn't move um, because of the nature of politics and that fear of public opinion. Absolutely. Uh, anyone who has a very high degree of access today, like you used the Qantas example, yeah, they're not going to be big fans. Whereas there is a vast majority, uh, yeah, there would be a numerical significant majority of entities who want to change something with government for whom the route through it is simply too difficult to navigate. Uh, there's a wonderful saying that everyone thinks they have got on their side. Um, the nature of a jury is to say, if, if you get to make your case to 50 people I pick at random, will they agree that your case is logical? My experience is the vast majority of, of people and organisations say yes to that. Um, but you're right, there, there is a powerful niche that will be challenging to overcome. But in this job, I've encountered some very high net worth company owners who talk about their engagement with government as frustrating because they're trying to make a serious case that requires judgment and long-term thinking. Yep. And the incentives of our, electoral do, of our electoral system do not align to that. So, okay. yeah, we um, I obviously don't want to get into specific names because um, it's great that people talk to us because they feel that freedom. But we see increasingly a really interesting array of notionally powerful entities saying we can't enact reform, we can't get significant changes um, because everything hits that is it announceable barrier you know will we get a bump in the news and the polls yeah. this week that's a terrible way to make decisions well that's encouraging to hear that there are firms out there that are, that are trying to go beyond just kind of a corrupted kind of access greed model they're actually trying to push logical what they think is logical reforms and so so th this this would then democratize that and, and bring meritocracy back. Okay, but if we talk about politicians, so you talk about politicians who might want this model because then they can get the support of the public by, say, difficult decisions. Um, we can we can have a citizens' assembly endorse it or, or come up with it. But what about conviction politicians? I'm thinking of the likes of, um, like Daniel Andrews or Tony Abbott, people who seem quite strong-willed in what they want to do, uh, less 
populist, I would argue. Like it seems like they're not really for turning whatever their policies are. Uh, this model probably wouldn't suit them, right? Because some politicians come into power wanting to make specific changes to how they see Australia or the world. And what you're suggesting is they become more caretakers or, or the first among equals, you know, um, a lightning rod rather than setting the tone. They're really just collecting the the, the, the group tone of the polity. And some of them wouldn't like that. Let me, there's, I want to answer your question in a number of different ways. When I first started in this job, way back 2011, when the idea of there's a problem with democracy we need to fix, people just laughed at us. Okay, that, that was a number of years. And one of our earliest supporters was former New South Wales Premier Nick Greiner. So, of course, having held elected office, I, I went to see him. And um, he just, he wouldn't mind me sharing now. I think I've seen him share it in a couple of public forums. But he described his time in Parliament fairly colourfully as, you know, I didn't always love going to Parliament. We, we have a kind of presidential system. People pick a Premier. And he wasn't too concerned with breaking eggs. By his own description, he said, you know, we balanced the budget. We closed some, we closed some schools. We built freeways. We pushed and got on with things. And as he described it, he said, even with that level of hubris, I, I came in one day and wanted to fix one problem. And he said, there's not a parliament in Australia. You won't find a single politician. What we do in prisons actually works. And he said in, he considered it in his time in office. And he said, literally every colleague, every friend, every family member said, don't touch it. It's political suicide. You're going to hit this public opinion problem where the next crime is all of a sudden lumped in your lap. And he said to me, why I support you is that with my time again, I would reach out to you and ask a jury of citizens, what should we do with people convicted of a crime? Because today I want to reform something and my room to move fits in a matchbox. And those people who've considered the recidivism, the costs, the downstream impact, um, the likelihood of people's children then falling into a life of crime, like a myriad of variables, because you can get immersed in something over that four to five months, all of a sudden the range of options becomes bigger. So I, taking your question, I think you can be a conviction politician wanting to reform something and you can push as hard as you want, but you still end up in the matchbox. You still end up massively constrained by public opinion and colleagues. And as long as you're not wedded to one specific answer or as long as you're willing to defend that answer and make the case substantively, not in sound bites, to a jury of citizens, these are actually empowering for leaders who want to pursue a reform agenda. It's not constraining. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I always look at on the liberal side of politics is I would say there's a number of their members who would love to look at industrial relations. Mm. Now, what happens... I'm saying each to any time that a coalition MP raises the uses the phrase industrial relations, it takes the media 20 or 30 seconds to say... Work choices. There we go. Join the chorus. <laughs> Imagine a world where a coalition government doesn't start from that point. They simply ask a jury of citizens, what are the protections and freedoms we want at work? You see, it's an open question. It can go in any direction. But I think they sit in the matchbox now and they'd like to see the big box of where citizens actually strike a balance. Yeah, okay. okay. Let's go to Abbott did this with the plebiscite on gay marriage. Uh, uh, is that what it's called? Was it gay marriage? Was it called... Um... Same-sex marriage. Right. Yeah, but he, he did the plebiscite, right? He called for the plebiscite. Now, th this was, I found that, I thought that was a very good move because, you know, then 
whatever result comes out, you know, the population owns it. You know, it's a bit more bit more democratic than just one of them pushing a line. But have you? I, I sense during that uh, war, the political war, that debate, there were some people who were not happy with the plebiscite, the fact that we were going to go and collect a whole bunch of support for same-sex marriage. And so I guess what I'm putting to you is what you're suggesting requires a generational change in politicians because the people who are in there are self-selected for a certain type of politician who's very good at, at, at what you're talking about, m working within the matchbox, but also certain politicians who might want to, on all sides, you might have a Clive Palmer, you might have a Tanya Plibersek, they're all over the shop, but they have an Adam Bant, they've got very specific things that they want to achieve. And there's not many I find like a Gladys Berejiklian or some others who are a little bit more, I couldn't tell you what Gladys stood for. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean that she seemed to be trying to govern and she had lots of failures as many do, but she was just trying to do, you know, do, do a job. But then there are other politicians you, you think they're in there very specifically to achieve X, Y, and Z. Yes. So generational change, uh, what you're suggesting is going to take a while. And they may be in there to achieve X, Y, and Z. And I would gently nudge you and say, and are they achieving it? I would suggest that, you know, you often hear a reform story told and two things always come up. And I can see you reaching for examples. Hopefully I'll land on the two that have just popped into your mind. People will talk about, yeah, but we got the GST election in 1998 under Howard. That is a major transform transformational tax reform. Mm. Um, and we did get the floating of the dollar and the superannuation system under Keating as treasurer in the late 80s to early 90s. And they are great examples of political leadership by, by conviction on each side of politics. Mm. However, that's a 26-year interval. So, mm. you know, getting one reform every 26 years is not a great advertisement for pure conviction politics. All we're really suggesting is there's room for both, that you can actually, these can coexist. And we're not, not talking about a massive financial overhead on our system. Um, at a federal level, a, a major project costs somewhere between two to four and a half million dollars. That's to cover the nation. Um, the German Bundestag has committed to three citizens assemblies per year. Uh, Ireland is running three per year. President Macron is now running two per year. You're talking about a 10 to $12 million overhead compared to what I, I think that's what it costs to run the office of about three senators. Okay. This is a small incremental cost that frees up what we see as the key problem in politics. And that's why I, I kind of keep coming back to it. It's this public opinion, public judgment gap. You use the plebiscite for marriage equality as an example. And there's on one hand, purely an opinion mechanism. No one really thought too much. You kind of went with your instinct. Mm -hmm. And because it's a largely a morality and human rights issue, probably a good fit for a pure opinion process but you landed on the critical part, which was having a body of support, having a, a big body of regular people in this case saying we're okay with it, empowered politics to act. Yeah. We run small numbers, but we run common ground. It's so rare. I mean, try and get, try and get six people to agree a takeaway food order or order at a restaurant. It's impossible. People finding common ground is so rare that it makes us stop and look. If 50 people, and we set a minimum threshold of 80% of the room, very rarely need it. Most things come you know, 95% plus support with one or two people not supporting it. Having that across that whole divide of the diversity of the community, that's that makes people stop and take a second look. Okay, Ian, do you detect uh, 
still sticking on those in power, those of us who get elected or whatever, um, or run big corporations, before we get to whether people accept this idea or not, do you detect um, this idea of, you know how sometimes, if I can call it the elites, or uh, it, sometimes they reject popular opinion? So Brexit uh, in the US, uh, I had an example in my mind, in the US they, they're not, oh, no, let's go to The Voice, The Voice, right? So we were... Um, the Indigenous Voice in Australia, every major body from from flipping Pfizer down, which is not even Australian, down to um, local media stars in the Australian landscape, we're, we're all for one side of that referendum. Then when the people rejected it, uh, there is a, I feel a contention. I feel like we're not, we've, we've done the wrong thing. Do you, do you see that kind of dynamic there in terms of citizens' assemblies? If we're coming up with, determinations that don't quite fit what the elected and what the the elite want or the corporate people want, there could be a conflict there. Matt, over the years, I've heard every possible objection to using juries. Um, you've been very polite. Um, some of the elites you describe, if I say I'm going to pick 50 people at random, they picture the Moorabbin TAB at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, okay? Yeah, they, they don't picture society. You know, a good a good way to think of this is, and I'm going to use some census data, firstly, 95% of people have a job and manage their lives. Um, just, just start with that as society. You often hear in, you know, debates like you've just mentioned, we hear from the two edges of the bell curve, Right. Okay. Um, those elites are at one end, um, organizations with a very strong point of view can be at another end and boof, yeah. they go head to head. So you're right. There is a lack of faith often in regular people. And I've, I've, I've summarized there, but yeah, I've heard all sorts of things from all sorts of corners, from left to right, from corporate to NGO. Uh, the counterpoint is, um, are you familiar with Moneyball? You know, the Brad Pitt movie where he transformed this example is not going to work then. In essence, he selected players based on not how, you know, how they looked or how they swung, but by their stats. And there was a great phrase. He said, yep, but they get on base. The thing with citizens, juries and assemblies is that they're working in practice. There's, if you can say citizens will do X, citizens will do Y, you know, they'll, they'll vote to abolish all taxes and triple all services. I understand all those objections. And my response is simply, let us run a single trial and watch. Because when we've done this, we have seen budgets balanced. We have seen massively contentious issues resolved. And it works in practice. So absolutely there's objections. And no one should just trust you know, a concept or trust us blindly. But they should be open to the idea of a trial. And if we're wrong, then we've wasted one philanthropist's money and we'll slink silently into the night. But if it works... Just think of the transformative benefit to a country that when a politician net pipes up and said, we need to have a national conversation, and I've got no idea what they mean by that phrase because it tends to just mean a, a couple of columnists in either newspaper going head-to-head -head and everyone tuning out. If we actually get to a point where we can start reform conversations because we're not looking for the gotcha moment, we're not looking for the soundbite, we pass it to a jury of citizens and they give us a starting point, the big box, we start to change what is actually possible in terms of getting more efficient long-term decisions. So I know the objections and the answer to the objections is I'm not asking, well, for a permanent constitutional change as we saw last year. We're asking for a single national trial 
and people can look at it and you're either going to trust it and love it or you're going to hate it and we'll be wrong, but we'll be wrong cheaply and we won't be much more wrong than politics is every single night when you turn on the news. Okay, that yeah, I understand what you're saying. And it may be an inverted, but I feel like you've done a political move on me here that you've answered a question that, that I'm not really asking. I do want to talk about that. But what I'm specifically wondering is about, like with Brexit, right? Yep. Uh, it doesn't really matter which side you're on. They voted, the population voted very strongly once or twice. I can't remember, it's UK, but they voted yep. strongly to go one way. But it was pulling teeth to get a democratic um, outcome f- to actually be enacted. And so all I'm wondering is whether you're Clive Palmer or you're Simon Holmes Accord or you're George Soros or you're Rupert Murdoch, people who have power and they have very specific political and ideological goals, clearly, from all sides, as I've just mentioned. Those people, um, there's a dist- you summed it up well. You said it's a general distrust in the, in, in the general population, right? Yep. So I I just struggle to see how you're going to get this to take off when you're going against all of those powerful interests. Oh, Matt, it's even worse. If you, there, was a, there was a question um, answered by the Prime Minister in question time last year around August, and he was asked by the crossbench, would you ever consider a citizen's assembly? And he said the only assembly that counts is the one that's right here. Um, Who which, said that, Albo? Yeah, yeah. Um, Mistake. Shouldn't um, have said that. And so, look, summarising your view, yes, I see all the obstacles. We often joke um, we're the last phone call people make because if they could take literally any other option, they would. I'm agreeing with you. All those pick an interest in, you know, a powerful interest in any sector. Um, I don't want to name the person concerned, but we got a lovely note from a bank chairman a couple of years ago, just after Christmas. Mm. Um, And there's a wonderful book by a guy called David Van Raybrook. He's provocatively titled it Against Elections. And he makes the case for, you know, a lot of what we've discussed so far, that elections create an impairment on judgment that Mm. outweighs the benefit you get from that representativeness. It's a great little book that you should pick up. So we've sent a few hundred of those around, some of those influential people you described. We heard back from a chairman of a major bank, lovely silver letter-headed stationery is expected, Mm. and said, I thought you were crazy for years, and now I see that this might be an idea whose time has come. Think about, and I'm going to pick an example, the major banks, massively powerful entities. So hopefully yes. go to the core of your question and yeah. I won't get suggested I'm being politically evasive like before. <laughs> um, think of those major banks when you have a banking royal commission. Hmm. Banks are a free hit politically. If you're a politician, yes. you're lagging a bit, let's kick a bank. You know, it's, it's easy stuff and it responds well to public opinion. If you've got a home loan, you probably don't love your bank but there's a gap between opinion and judgment. Imagine a world where the banks actually start to realize, hang on, we're going to get a better hearing from a jury than we are from a political class. Yes, we're contributing money and we should be buying some friends out of that. Mm. But when push comes to shove, they still kick us and bite us because there's votes in it. Imagine we start to say, what is a fair balance of banking regulation? Because we're also customers of the bank. And if you had to take out a home loan in the last few years, you've probably seen that the Paperwork required has gone up steadily. Um, So you start to get much more balance. So, yeah, I think you'll increasingly see entities that look like they have total power and access become increasingly open to this idea, at least enough to support a trial. And if you want to be cynical, they might support a trial in someone else's industry. We'll take Mm -hmm. it because we just want to show that this can do something transformational. 
Uh, and every politician we've spoken to and a lot of commercial leaders, when we tell them what happened in Ireland, they do stop and say, okay, well, that's more difficult than anything I've seen in Australian politics for 40 years. Okay, last question on the elite stuff, and then let's go to the people. So uh, New Democracy Foundation, right? There's got to be someone who who kicked that off or who provided, you know, yep. we have seed funding. You know, Everyone has to start somewhere. That's not a bad thing to have a political backer. But even whoever's backing you guys, and I'll ask you to tell that story, they would have a political and agenda, right? So yep. who are they and what's their agenda and how can we trust it and so on? Sure. The founder and still the underwriting donor. So we have other donors, but candidly, Luca is 90% plus of the money, which goes to the core of your question. Uh, Luca Beljonanetis, his father started Transfield. Um, so Bill- What's that? You, uh, Transfield Services. Um, so Brings owned, a bill. Um, basically think of heavy engineering and infrastructure projects. So go back to the 50s, high voltage yep. power lines, the snowy- oh, Yeah, that's uh, right. Built and owned the Harbour Tunnel, uh, handed back to the state government last year, built rail lines to the airport. So heavy industry mm. you know, at, a, at a fairly good level, as you would expect. Um, as a corollary of that or as a consequence, Luca got invited to political fundraisers since he was yay high. Um, so the catalyst for this was in 2005. Um, I think he just sort of had had enough and said, let's not pretend this is civic contribution we all do this for access, you know, political fundraising dinners. None of us want to be here, but that's the way the game is played. He said, you're probably going to hit me for 50 or a hundred thousand dollars. I'll give you $5 million to take donations out of politics. And the MP concerned who will never name, because it would give us a partisan skew um, simply said, you'll, you'll write your check anyway. If you want to work in this state, no one can change this system. What state? Uh, I'm just going to leave that one out. We just don't want okay. to, we don't want to be identifiable because it looks okay. like they would be opposed to one yeah, party. But th this is not Northern Territory. This is a major state. Correct. Yeah. So with that, Luca contacted the University of Sydney and said, who do I donate to that gets donations out of politics? Um, he went through to the School of Government, not the Vice Chancellor's office, hitting him up for a library. Um, and they said, read these five books, come back when you know something. And those five books were on juries, Athenian democracy and the like. It's a great way to work with Luca because he read the six books, called them back and said, this is a much better idea than what I've had. Who's doing this? And the answer was nobody. Um, the university said, look, we teach, we lecture, you know, we publish. Mm. But if you want to do this kind of advocacy where you're doing political advocacy plus design and operations, it's going to cost three, $4 million before you start. And he said, all right. So um, Luca, I would say is, I don't think he's voted in 30 years. Um, he always cites a, a lovely piece of graffiti. He saw at Bondi Beach once and said, don't vote. It only encourages them. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. And, and yeah, he's, I think one of the ways we're able to traverse um, people in politics is that he is known largely as an arts donor. Um, he is not active commercially. He's at that wonderful retirement age where money's invested yeah. in funds. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have strong political views other than if we can solve this problem, what a great philanthropic thing to have done because I, I, he, he denies this, I should emphasize, but every time an election is called, he simply leaves the country for two months. He just doesn't oh. want to sit through it. So wow. I understand there's some people who are very passionate about politics. Our funder just says, I'm off to Venice. Tell me when it's over. I, I like this guy. Yeah. Um, and so that's his, that's his motivation as a funder. 
And my first day in the job, he did say to me, and you know, I'm aware of your audience might be a little, little more elite, but he just gave me the brief. And he said, there's 20 people in the country who can afford to do what we're about to do. And 18 of them are pricks. So let's <laughs> go. I don't, you, we're, we're not going to worry with donation reform, whether it's $500 or a thousand dollars. Okay. It doesn't make any difference. Mm. We are going for a moonshot transformative reform and you're right. We're going to get a lot of doors slammed in our face along the way, but if we're right, it makes a tremendous impact. So I think your question went to where's the money come from. Hopefully yep. that gives you a feel for it. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds cool. Okay. So transfield, uh, inheritor, person and pretty non-political and he's got bitten by the Athenian democracy bug. When you said 18, he said 18 out of 20 are pricks. He, so he's one, number 19. Who's the 20th that's not a prick? I think it was just a shorthand. It's a conversational element. Um, I'm getting, <laughs> what is it? I'm getting more relaxed about saying it on things that are recorded. He doesn't love it, but it was a great first day in the job. And it was, you know, if you think about how a board operates, I have a, uh, the academic he spoke to, Lynn Carson at University of Sydney, is kind of like model purity. Um, Kathy Jones, who worked in communications and advocacy with government, is my real politic brain. And Luca keeps us focused on the big goal so you don't get lost in the weeds. The goal is to enact a transformative reform. Ireland's done it. Germany's done it. The path is set. It's working in places that are trying it. And we just need to get in front of enough politicians to say, show us something hard. Let us run it once and decide for yourselves if this makes politics better. So these places where you talk about where it's already implemented, like in Ireland, you're talking about round the edges or little kind of, like you mentioned, France, um, the, the, what's is it? Prime minister, president, prime minister, president oh. of France. Um, yeah. So what, what kind of, how, what's your biggest win? How high have you got these citizens assemblies to be into politics around the world? So I'm going to start with the Irish example because it's the best one. Um, in Ireland, you had a right-aligned government, Fine Gael, um, who hit a political problem in that, um, you know how news stories bubble up out of nowhere? Mm. The story that started to come up was the number of women in Ireland who were travelling to London for an abortion procedure and dying. Mm. Now, think of this in terms of political difficulty, whether you're at the left of a left-wing party or the right of a right-wing party. You are a right-to-line government that needs to have some kind of abortion law reform with a right to life in right to life in the constitution and the church playing a major NGO role more than we can probably consider in this country. <clears throat> Whatever you may think of the issue, the political degree of difficulty is an 11. Yes. Yes. Now, how would this debate normally go? And you referenced the voice. Normally you get your bell curve of views and the two people, the two groups at the edges go head to head standard yep. playbook you take the worst argument of the other side yes and hit it repeatedly so in the context of abortion law <clears throat> excuse me those who wanted to change the law um essentially said the the no case will um uh wants to stop sexual assault victims having a termination and make them have a a baby as a product of a sexual assault <clears throat> those on the other side point back and said this can lead to gender selection like you, you go to those really polarizing shocking yep. examples yep. what the government did was commission a citizen assembly of 100 people mm. and they said does this need to change when they came out they essentially came out and i'm shorthanding this with six scenarios where they were happy for uh, abortion to be legalized three scenarios where they were not so the government was able to say we are going to have a referendum on this and in the event that it passes 
the law will broadly follow the list agreed by this group. Now, what you've done is take away the extreme nature of campaigning and add nuance. And our political system is not fabulous at nuance today. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to give you the referendum result. It doesn't imply that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. Okay, this is <clears throat> as per the voice, as per nuclear power, as per tax rates. There's no right answer. There's an answer where the community looks at it and says, that's fair enough. You, you can tax at 5% or 90%. And if the bulk of your community goes, yep, I, I like this, this is working for me, then it's a great democratic decision. Um, it was interesting in the Irish case, that referendum passed 67-33. Towards what side? It uh, Towards legalisation. Legalising so, abortion, right. Correct. Yeah. Now, the only reason I reference it is that is an unusual referendum figure. That is not the kind of numbers one would normally see. In exit polls, about 40% of the population could reference something that had come out of the assembly. A group in the assembly got a chance to think. Right. They shared what they thought and the voting public uh, latched onto that. Equally, um, just to give you one more example, we went to City of Melbourne some years ago um, and we got a fabulous brief. The council was overspent on a 10-year basis by $1.22 billion. Surprise. Um, and we asked people essentially, how can we live within our means? Yep. And they came up with a range of measures and I'd use the shorthand. There's something for everybody to hate. Yes. <laughs> they, um, yes, they, they voted, they, they noted that rates hadn't moved for 12 years and said, we well, you've got to move at least CPI or you're digging yourself a hole. Yep. Equally, they looked at services they did not value. They looked at assets, specifically city buildings where they were like, why, you, why have you got buildings that you don't use in a CBD? These can be sold. Uh, there was a great quote by um, Stephen Main. I remember Stephen Main, shareholder activist, used to work for Premier Kennett. And he said, it's not that we couldn't solve this problem ourselves, it's that we couldn't even discuss it. I think that's a really good snapshot of there are issues where politics today can't even discuss them. Let's just find where a random group actually lands and use that as a starting point. The city subsequently acted. They didn't act on all their recommendations, but they acted on about $790 million worth of the recommendations. Um, that's what we look at is when it comes to budget balancing. Um, I remember telling that story in Canberra and Mal Bruff was one in, in, a, in a briefing group who'd said, oh, thankfully that kind of spending would never happen here. And a very cross-party group just all laughed their heads off, which is terrifying given that we all live here. But electoral democracy is um, creates an incentive to spend other people's money. Yeah. A jury does not. A jury, everyone is very much aware of where the money comes from. Um, we often look at that idea of moral hazard, you know, from the investment side. Um, in moral hazard, what you're trying to avoid is, well, I can take risks because all the upside I get and all the downside is yours. In many ways, that's what election promises are. Um, the, the benefit accrues to the MP who gets the nice kind of well-paid job and you get your head on the telly. And if those programs don't go so well, what did it actually cost you? And I think we can start to remove some of that moral hazard by adding juries, particularly around major spending decisions. I'm thinking of ways to game your system, just to break it, right? I'm sure you've done this longer than I, I've been doing it for a good 47 minutes now. So <laughs> you've been doing it for 10 years. Uh, if I, First of all, from the politician's point of view, What's to stop politicians selectively using juries to rubber stamp what they already want? And I guess the deeper question is, how do you get your system to have more teeth and to be more um, involved in legislative or higher up in the chain, not just 
down the bottom rubber stamping stuff. There's sort of two questions there. There's mm. One is how do you get an authority? And the other one is how do you cheat it and break it? I'm going to start yeah. with this. It's the more fun topic. It's where you started. Yeah. Absolutely. One of our starting points is to look at where can you manipulate and design to stop that manipulation. So let me give you the run through. If you wanted to cheat a citizen's jury assembly or assembly process, firstly, you control the recruitment. You put friendlies in the room. If you want to run a major project, a really simple thing to do would be to say, what's the first lotto ball out on, what's the first you know ball out on Powerball this Thursday? Mm-hmm. And if it's 21, I'm using people with 21 as the day of their birth. Right. I think most people in the public accept that if I could cheat the lotto balls, I would not be sitting here talking to you. I would yeah. be on my private island somewhere. So yeah. you want to firstly make your recruitment be tied to a variable that cannot be manipulated. So right. recruitment is number one way to cheat if you wanted to do it. So that's selection of jury when you say recruitment. Yes, correct. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, so because if I wanted to, um, if I'm a politician, if I'm Tanya Plibersek wanting to push um, better abortion access for women in this country, I would choose them from St Kilda and Brunswick and Melbourne and from and from Newtown in Sydney. Or you'd even go the fake tradie route and stack it full of people who are, oh look, they all work in my office. I didn't know. I swear. Um, so you're saying know, t- tie it to things that can't change. So even in, but okay, but you can't do that with everything. As I said, with the geographic dispersion, like I just mentioned, you don't want to have them all come from Newtown and Sydney. Uh, so let me just yeah. do a little parenthesis here. Technically what we do is a stratified random selection. And I know you don't want to turn this into. No, please. Educate math me. Class. Stratified random selection simply means we tell Excel, do me a random draw that r- broadly follows some variables from the census. So we do it 50-50 by gender, follow the 10-year age bracket, and then, as you've noted, geographic distribution. We also ask if people own or rent where they live because it's a fabulous surrogate indicator for income and education. Mm -hmm. Um, We're a research foundation. We've tested a lot of things. People don't answer the income question, honestly, (laughs) but broadly in the census, and it varies by by place, broadly speaking, about 74% of Australians own their home, 26 don't. Um, As you get... Older, if you're not in your home, you're probably in a lower income group. It's a very good way to get that even match. Um, there are things that you can ask in that stratification which don't work, but that goes to your distribution point of, no, I'm not going to pick it all out of the the quinoa belt in Melbourne. Uh, you, the geographic control is a control for um, distribution of views as well. So that's, that's the jury selection and recruitment side. Manipulation. I'm going to give you the big way to manipulate it now. You would control the flow of information in there. Oh, yes. So if you can control the sources, you can control everything. Now, we use a simple rule of thumb, which is government writes a baseline document because we need a a very solid baseline of where we're at today. Mm. We then convene all the active stakeholders. So if you were doing something on the welfare system, you'd range from the BCA to ACOS, so on and so forth. And I'm looking to open that up hopefully to 20 to 30 people who will say, this is how we'd answer the question. But the critical way to defeat source pushing or source control is we aim for about half the sources to come from the citizens themselves because we're posing them an open question Hmm. and we say to make an informed decision, what do you need to know? Who do you trust to inform you? By surrendering source control, we prevent that manipulation. Skews are often unavoidable. Um, In some topics, there are just more interest groups on one side of an issue than another. That's what serves to preserve the balance. So that's I've given you now recruitment and information. 
I'm just going to give you two more so this doesn't turn into war and peace. The third way to manipulate it is to shorten the time mm-hmm. um, because people, you can push them to a decision. Like you've only got two days. We've, we've got to come to agreement. Let's not get into that in too much detail. We've got to get to answer A or answer B. So considerably expended time becomes very, very difficult to manipulate because people will sit there going, hang on, we haven't heard enough from Group X. Tied to this is the fourth way to manipulate it. We see this a little bit too much uh, in in Europe (laughs) is people do pre-written content for recommendations, which is voted up and voted down. We do free response. Literally picture a ring of those 50 people. They're at little cafe tables of three and four in Google Docs. We only put three words on the template, three words, recommendation. What is it you're saying? Reasoning, just conversationally tell me your logic, evidence. We think that is non-leading but gives people structure. And then they go through repeated iterations of writing, always mixing the group, and then using Likert scale feedback of one to five, love it to loathe it. And what needs to change about this for it to earn your support? That process alone takes us two operating days. So when I say we've got six, seven, eight operating days, the last two days are spent doing that because our goal is that we get to the end and 50 people say, yep, we did this. So there's really your four ways to manipulate it, Matt. And hopefully I've also shown you the four ways to um, that we design to make it difficult to manipulate. A government that follows those four principles will find it very hard to cheat one of these. So when we you get to, seen, we've seen two really good attempts to cheat. Tell uh, me about those. I'm not going to name the government agency's concern because we don't want, yeah. Don't yeah. want to embarrass people, yeah. but um, we had, we do the design and in-room facilitators operate it. A government entity on the last day had essentially gone to that commercial provider and said, this page goes into the report because we paid and we want it and you won't get paid if this doesn't happen. And they were very concerned. It was a, you know, considerable contract for them. Mm-hmm. And they'd contacted us and we gently explored it. And this is the joy of being philanthropically backed. Um, mm-hmm. I made a call to Luca and said, we might be spending some money today. And we simply said, we understand you're, you're trying to do this uh, manipulation and you're threatening not to pay them. We will pay all the suppliers, but there is no way you're doing that. Um, wow. So you do need to have a, you know, he only asked me on Monday, he said, what was that going to cost by the way? And I was like, you know, we could have been out about $250,000 there. Wow. Lucky that they folded. No, but this is where there is a role for a small research foundation. Yep. Without My self-interest, hopefully, Matt, is super naked, okay? Hmm. I'm trying to prove that there's a substantive role for randomly selected everyday people could transform politics. I, I'm not here to make a single government entity happy for a day. The point is to demonstrate the integrity of it. Um, for those is there watching, another? Sorry, go on. Um, the only other one, and it wasn't a manipulation, it was more just a funny anomaly. Um, if you went back to one of the first projects we did for Premier Weatherall, um, picture 20,000 invitations go out across the state, uh, about 2,500 or 2,300 people RSVP, which is a great rate, 10% of people giving you six Saturdays of their life. <clears throat> we then do the random stratified selection to pick 43 people. And if you Google the name Daniel Gannon, you'll find that we picked the head of communications for the opposition leader. How did he even get in that pool to be chosen? Random is random. Occasionally the first lotto balls will come out one and two. They don't turn the machine off. Random happens. Yeah, but hang on. Where are you getting this list from that his name was on it? Yellow pages? We went to, we, so to do the recruitment, again, it goes to your manipulation point. You're using the largest possible, uh, you're looking for the most universal database you can get to. The electoral rolls are terrible. 
Yeah. Um, we What we use is there is an Australia Post reference file of everywhere they've successfully delivered mail. That's uh, cool. Yeah, because then what we pick up, uh, you know yourself, if I sent you a letter and it mm. said to Bob Smith, you'd go, well, I'm not Bob Smith, you throw it out. That's right. So address is sufficient. And then what we found is we obviously, it looks like a royal wedding invitation. Uh, but yeah, we're using very universal databases. We don't filter, we don't cut, because it goes mm. to the trust issue. Everyone thinks that the government gets to run their ruler over it and cut over people they don't like. While that was a pretty, you know, you could probably picture, that was a pretty bumpy day at work. There was definitely a couple of phone calls of what the hell is this? Um, Shadow comms minister, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Daniel Allen, he was, yeah, uh, communications for the opposition leader. Okay. Um, not a minister, not a politician, an advisor. Oh, right. Um, and what was good is we simply said, random is random. This mm. this is can happen. And, you know, it's a good news story. Jay said, if, if it checks out, it checks out. That's fine. Um, which was a positive, you know, there's probably a few politicians who would have been putting my head on a stick somewhere. Um, but that should give you a sense of sort of the integrity measures. Now, the second part of your question went to authority. You know, how do you get governments to actually implement it? That's always our upfront conversation. So we will only take on a project with pre-agreed authority. So to use that example uh, I just went into, which was essentially late night alcohol related violence, mm. we said to the Premier, I need to be able to send an invitation out where a regular person looks at it and says that's worth it. So firstly, their report is public immediately. Literally, they finish at 4.45 on a Saturday. It's live on our website within two or three minutes. Right. Because everyone thinks governments will, you know, redact yes. and get rid of things yes. they don't like. So immediately public, uh, substantive written response within 45 days. And within three weeks after that, the commissioning politician will meet with you to discuss in detail uh, and explore any areas of ambiguity or nuance. To a regular citizen, that is the best democratic offer yep. they will get. The um, buy-in will be huge. Yeah, this is amazing. So that's where if you think of some of the challenging things that we find in politics, you know, one of the things that the crossbench has advocated for uh, the broad crossbench, I mean, so not just the, the teals, mm -hmm. et cetera, is why don't we have a citizen's assembly on housing affordability? Yeah. Because there's clearly some political barriers. There's clearly some elements of money and influence blocking this up. And all you've got to be do, able, willing to do is commit to those three criteria. Um, so at the end of a citizen's assembly is the results, how hung can a jury be? Like, do they all, yeah, how does that work? How do I think about that even? In, in reality, think more about incentives to disagree. In, I'm going to start with politics today and then come to the jury. A government, blue or red or green, doesn't matter, could announce free chocolate bars for everyone. I'm in. And what will the opposition say? Terrible. What about the lactose intolerant? What about the oh. Carrot Producers Association? What yeah. about obesity? And you're like, yeah. look, Cadbury bar, I'm sure it'll be fine. They have incentives to disagree. Mm -hmm. A jury doesn't have incentives to disagree. They'll have different perspectives, but we're giving them the time to walk through it. I'm going to use a deliberately uh, shallow example so it doesn't, we don't have any policy yeah. views, so I don't like giving examples that are yeah. too live. Um, imagine someone writing a recommendation, those small cafe tables sitting in Google Docs, and it said, you know, kids should play outside in the sun. Oh, look, it's got, got quite a lot of support. When we test and say, let's look at the people who don't support it and why, someone might say, oh, it gets pretty hot in summer and they're probably all going to get burned. They'd be better off if they wore a hat. 
So then you think about amending that and say kids should play outside in the sun and if it's really hot, wear a hat. You're taking statements in incrementally growing the level of support. Um, to go to what doesn't resolve, we do use, essentially what we're writing is what the, the super majority of people can agree to. Yes. We do keep scope for what is called a minority report. Now, this is not just one person's hobby horse. We're 10% or more of the room want to express a view. All we're saying when we task people to write themselves is reflect the room. So it's a statement that the whole room can live with to say 20% of us think this. One of our first projects was an energy inquiry for the New South Wales Parliament. And one of the things they touched on was nuclear power. And when we said write to reflect the room, they said 90% of us think this. And 10% of us think that the report you can just pull up off our website. And it's really interesting. It's quite nuanced and all our projects are listed there and all the reports there as a, as a reference for people. This was in 2012 and people said, we always talk about nuclear power, but we don't like gen one and two nuclear power. It's had some issues, but gen five thorium reactors show promise. And then they said, it'll probably take us 20 years to agree where to site one. So a siting decision for thorium reactors should be started today. Look at the nuance that that group of random people could add, and look at what is discussed in politics, where it does tend to be nuclear good, nuclear bad. Yeah. Uh, that's, I think, a degree of nuance. It's very productive and supportive for people in elected office because all it really is is a fair hearing. Okay. Do, uh, two, yeah, two questions. Um how much is this going towards direct democracy in you know the Switzerland style? I think it's Switzerland, you know, where they have direct, often frequent vote into legislative power. Uh, it's not really, but um, direct democracy is still public opinion. Okay, you're still getting asked to vote, generally without a lot of other information, and direct democracy is by definition the whole population. So. Um, we contrast that and say, no, we're sampling the population. So we're taking a much smaller number and we're actually giving them this extended multi-month process to find common ground. So d- direct democracy is still, it's your, it's your marriage equality plebiscite. Uh, it's your, what do you think off the top of your head? We think that actually makes the public opinion problem worse. The two project processes can be twinned together. So um, there's a phenomenon in the West Coast of the United States called citizens-initiated referenda. These sound like a great idea. They're ballot initiatives you've probably heard of. Um, and they sound like a fabulous idea. You know, more democracy is always better. In practice, they're a disastrous idea. To get your ballot initiative up, you need a couple of million signatures. So you'd probably need a professional organising group, <laughs> which means you probably need several million dollars which probably means this system is going to get gained. What they did in Oregon was starting to realise that any kind of ballot initiative could be could be framed in a way that was supportive. So I'm going to give you the, a, an absolute shorthand here. A, a body, and I think it was the teachers went first, said education is really important. 20% of the budget should always go for education. So your direct model, people got that on the piece of paper and went, sounds pretty good, tick. Um, start to fast forward, the police realised this was a pretty good idea and went, well, law and order is pretty important. Should always be 20% of the budget. Yeah. Fast forward and people went, oh, that looks pretty good. Ticked it off. You see in the direct one, you're not considering trade-offs and consequences. You're getting a single proposition. Eventually, the Oregon legislature found themselves tied in knots. 
because they pre-spent their entire budget through these initiatives that have been driven by organised interests trying to essentially put a pretty innocuous-sounding thing that served their, their longer interests. In Oregon, they ran a multi-year program where when there's a ballot initiative, 24 people are picked to write a one- to two-page informational. Simply, what do we all need to know before we vote on this? Um, it's a different format to what we operate, but to give you a sense, all of a sudden you're getting one to two pages of information of, look, 16 of us thought it was pretty good, and then we considered these three points. Four of us were very concerned by this topic, and we learned these three points. Again, it's written by folks like you. It's two pages. You're inclined to read it. So that's the direct side. Uh, direct side is still mass public opinion, and so it's the keep coming back to that jury trial. I wouldn't want to give millions of people a vote on whether or not I go to jail. Yeah. Yeah. And that should be the side floor. Okay. So I guess it's a bit hypothetical, but can you imagine a world where there's a little bit more teeth in your citizens' assemblies so that a government can't simply not commission one because they know it's not going to go well for them or ignore uh, the results of one? Can it embed itself a bit more in our um, government? Oh, it can embed itself a lot more. <laughs> we're, we're... We started out as a leader. We had a lot of state premiers, Premier O'Farrell, Premier Weddell, who I've mentioned, commissioned projects. We found federal projects obviously difficult to secure. And the killer here in Australia is I have a slow methodology and we have three-year federal terms. Oh, and no. So your biggest barrier, you mentioned politicians before, my absolute nightmare killer barrier is that if you weigh it up, I have about a 10-month methodology, Matt. So four months to plan, six months to execute. In a three-year federal term, you're, you're doing the sums ahead of me, aren't you? It's too of thumb in politics. You don't want anything new landing within 12, increasingly 15 months before an election. Yeah. Trying to get into people in that three to four months after the election. So yeah. now we've evaporated, we've evaporated 16 to 20 months out of a 36-month term, and I need to insert a 10-month method inside that so you are trying to prepare with governments and get ahead but and again I, I shouldn't keep dropping his name but it was nick griner who warned me in the first month and he said everyone's a reformer in opposition yes so you, we do end up drawing out quite a lot of work for alternate governments and then it switches and and things are a little different and that's just the price to play and why you need to be philanthropically backed because we just need to keep turning up yeah okay that's sad. I mean, that's one thing I support Albo on strongly. I think he said he wants to have four-year term limits. But that may be a headline I read. I did not look deeply into it. And thus, the problem of why we are where we are today. Um, Ian, what, just in closing, I mean, you've kindly accepted to come and chat here, but we're, I don't know, I was going to say we're pretty small, a couple hundred thousand people in the, pretty small in the social media world across platforms. But obviously, there's a few people there listening. So you've decided to come on here and talk to them. But it sounds to me like your problem is not really with the people. It sounds like you could convince them pretty well. It's with the politicians. So I'm just wondering, thank you for being here, but I'm wondering why you're here and how we can help. Like, what would you tell the people listening? Thank you. That's the, the best entree, closing entree to an interview is I've it? ever had. Um, politicians care about large numbers. Mm. Okay. It's the only thing they care about. What people can do who are watching, you very kindly referenced the Change Politics website at, uh, at the outset, changepolitics.org.au. What we need is to people to turn up and watch the video and hopefully sign onto a mailing list. Do you know why GetUp gets listened to? 
because GetUp have a million email addresses. Now, in reality, I think they've got about 14,000 people contribute $20 or so, yeah. but people in elected office see that million headline number. We think democratic reform will get a kick along. New Democracy has been doing the workshop training project design, but change politics wants to get to a point where we can say to people, we can say to people in elected office, look at this, 200,000 people care about democratic innovation and want to see something. Anytime you can put a number like that, it makes a difference. So it's I a mailing list. care enough, even just watch a YouTube video. If we end Numbers. up with a fabulous video, I think you're old enough to remember Coney 2012, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why did that actually work? 70 million people watched a slightly boring 30 minute YouTube video. Mm. I'm only ever asking people to watch a two or three minute video. And if we actually hit one that gets spread and gets shared, and there's a new one coming out in uh, a few, couple of weeks time. If we hit to the point where, wow, this video is actually taken off and getting shared politicians, all the, all the flaws in the system that make them care about public opinion will make them follow the numbers. I'm, I'm an evangelist. We have an idea to spread. That's why I'm here to tell it. But if people want to take an action, simply watching videos like that to push the numbers up, let's just, just buttonhole a politician a little more closely and say, this is not some weird fringe idea. If you're on a 2,000 vote margin, I can tell you there's a few thousand people in your electorate who care about this. And that's why we try and get out and spread the word. There's so much we can do with the arguments we've shared today, the logical arguments but big numbers help to drive the fear argument of, well, if you're not going to try out this idea, potentially some of your political rivals are. And in politics, that is, that's an incredible motivator. So hopefully anyone who's watched the 70 minutes thus far is suitably motivated to go on and, uh, and check it out at change politics. Okay, cool. So you're not looking for money donations right at this stage because you, you're funded, but you're looking for eyeballs, traffic. Yeah. Aim. Spread the word. We've got a cool idea. If people get out and spread it and share it and share it amongst their friends and networks, that's where we have an idea that I think today, I'm not sure how much you knew coming in. It's a, it's not a straightforward idea like donation reform yeah. or advocacy reform where we know what it is. We've got a kind of weird thing to sell. And the analogy I'd love to use to close out, um, when Sony launched the Walkman, um, and I think you're too young for this, but Sony... I've had a Walkman. How dare you? Uh, it's actually a compliment. But anyway, I'll move through that. When <laughs> Sony developed it, all their market research said people don't want it. Mm. They, and it was the chairman of Sony said, what are you asking people? And they're saying, well, do you want to take your music with you? And everyone pictured boom boxes and went, I'm not carrying that. That's ridiculous. And the chairman of Sony said, just put it on shelves. It's going to sell. We want the chance, you know, our stockist is the major political party, so it's a little more challenging, but it's the same logic of if you say should citizens get more involved in politics, yeah, we're used to stupid opinion polling, et cetera. I've got a new product. We've got the Walkman of democracy we want to show people, and it's people viewing it and sharing it that's actually going to move the needle. Amazing. Ian, I, I'm a fan of what you're doing here. Uh, you're on the right channel uh, to go deep into nuance. And a lot of our listeners, we have a strange retention rate where they stay. Uh, now, I'm going to go away. I want to be on this email. This doesn't cost me anything. So I encourage other people to be on it. But, but to be honest with you, I, I'm so ingrained. I still have cognitive dissonance in my head, which I need to work through, which is on one hand, I'm like, of course, a jury would be awesome. But on the other hand, 
it's full of TAB idiots. I don't want them deciding what the country is. So I think there's a bit of a cultural shift that needs to take place in my mind and in a lot of the people's minds. So I I wish you you'll only believe it. You'll only believe it when you see it. Don't take my word for it. That's why the trials are so good. I've had so many cynics and skeptics, particularly in elected office, say, I understand all your concerns. Come along and see it. So the next time we have a jury on, we always try to keep them as open as possible so anyone can come and have a look. I'll drop you a note, but hopefully with love to hopefully with the reach of your uh, of this show as well, we'll get more people saying, okay, we'll commission a larger pilot, maybe at federal level, and that way everyone can see it. I don't want people to take me on faith; I want them to look. All right, everyone, come on, help me flex to make discernible relevant this little passion project. Go and click on the links below and uh, help out this new democracy foundation. At this point, I'm happy to say I endorse it. Thank you for being part of this, Ian. Thank you for being part of this, viewers. Uh, if you want to support what we do, it's at discernible.locals.com. I will leave you with a quote. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but uh, he said, um, though the problems of humanity are increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple. See you later, Ian. Pleasure. Thanks, Matt.